How we doing? Hey, y'all can say whatever y'all want about some of y'all can't say y'all didn't hear the word when y'all came in here. Y'all getting whole chapter snippets at a time. Thank you, Jesse, for doing that and reading that. And we were intentional in choosing to go back through this passage and how we were going to do that, uh, because this is one of the most important chapters, I believe, in the Bible, but specifically in the book of John, because several things happen. Uh, if we've been following along or if you've been following along with us in this series in John, uh, one of the major things that happens, what's going on right now preceding this verse is there's a crowd of people that are starting to follow Jesus around. And if you look in verse 2, it says they, they, they were following him around because of the healings he was doing with the sick. And then it was around Passover time, so all of the Gentiles would come into Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover. All of these people would come in to celebrate the Passover. All of the Jews would come in from all of the different regions around, uh, around uh, Jerusalem. And then Jesus does the miracle and feeds the 5,000. And so that's when people said, oh, this is the guy. He's the one. That's when in the Matrix, right, they look at Neo. They, that's him. That's him. I'm, for all you high schoolers right now, there's a thing going around high school athletics like I'm him. Y'all, anyways, y'all not following. Y'all not really with it. Um, they're like, that's him right there. We need to make him king right now. And so then after he does that, he then does one more thing, which is pretty miraculous to them. He walks on the water, but only the disciples saw that. He calls Peter out onto the water. We know that story. But then they wake up the next morning and they realize that they're not there. And so then they come down, they're looking for Jesus because he'd been teaching there for the last several days. And then they realize that only one boat had left and the disciples were on the boat, but Jesus wasn't on the boat. And they're like, yo, where did Jesus go? They go around to the other side and that's the first question that they ask him. And this is when they start to want Jesus to become the king, but they wanted a different king. They wanted an economic savior. They wanted a political savior. They wanted a material savior, but not the savior uh, that Jesus was offering him, which was very offensive. And so we're going to go back through this passage in this verse and literally how I struggled to put together sermon prep to share with you today and what it speaks about how we are also one of the characters in this story. So follow along with me. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to gather here to hear your word, to eat the bread of life, to chew on your flesh, to be here this morning and the grace that we are even here to hear this word and receive this word is further confirmation that you're drawing us, that you're calling us to pursue you, to pursue you, to follow you. Despite where we've been, despite the mistakes that we've made, despite the shortcomings that we have, Lord, you're calling us to our relationship with you. And Lord, the certainty that you give us in these passages is that when we come to you, Lord, you will never cast us out. You will never lose one of your sheep, Lord, and we take rest in that. We take refuge in that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, have you ever watched a movie or read a story where the first time you watch it, you just, you're totally better than all the characters and the people in the story? You're like, like for me, I'm like, yo, like I would never be that black guy who dies first in a scary movie, right? <laughs> like I always say that. I'm like, yo, I'm not doing that. There's like that Geico commercial where the dude's in the back. They're like, yeah, let's go behind the shed. And the guy sitting back there like, come on, guys. Like, I'm totally one of those people that are super judgmental when I'm watching the show for the first time. And I'm judging all the characters like I'm better than them. And so as I read through these passages, and as I analyzed this chapter in John, 
I, I thought that I was better than the characters. Like I couldn't understand why that they were struggling the way that they did. And so when you look at verse 2, verse 14, and verse 25, the crowds are following him because he healed the sick. And then in verse 14, they thought that he was a savior that would save them materially. And then in verse 25, they said, how can you get here, Jesus? Like, that'll cut down our fishing trips in half. If you can teleport across the Sea of Galilee, we're not going to be out there all day. Tell me how I can get this. And in my mind, I'm like, that's not really a thing for us. I didn't understand why they couldn't see Jesus and what he was doing because it wasn't in my own personal context. And I thought that I was better than them. Verse 52, as they, the Jews start to grumble, he says, and I'm saying in my mind, as they say, well, how will his body be broken from us? We, we know him. We know his family. He's the son of Joseph. How can his body be broken for us? How can we eat his flesh? And I'm like, duh, like, haven't you read the rest of the Bible, bro? Like, you know his body will be broken. You know his blood will be poured out as a ransom for our sin. Don't you understand? Why don't you believe the disciples in verse 60 when they're grumbling amongst themselves? And Jesus goes, did I offend you? Would it be more offensive if you saw the Son of Man ascending into heaven? And I'm like, y'all been with Jesus, sleeping with Jesus, intense with Jesus, following Jesus. You literally just saw one of your boys walk on water, and y'all don't believe. Literally the next morning, insane. And in my mind, I'm like, why don't they believe? And I never translated their concerns into my context. And so as I went through the scriptures and as I poured over all of the different verses and thought about what I would teach about today, I realized that, wow, when they said, Jesus, this is a hard text, who can understand it? This is a hard saying, who can take it in? I realized that I started grumbling in my own spirit. And I didn't understand God's grace when it was so apparent and right in front of me. And the notion that we struggle with this as Americans is because we've moved past the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution, and all of our needs are taken care of as a middle class, you know, Western society. We don't worry about when we get sick. So we're not going to be following Jesus around if somebody gets an ear infection, right? We're not going to be following Jesus around if he can make us more productive. We've got notion for that, right? We've got Dropbox, we've got productivity tools, we've got automation and workflow automation, we've got AI, chat GPT-4 as our savior. Who needs to actually do work when you can type a prompt in and it'll create things for you? So those things kind of fly over our heads. But as I was preparing for this, knowing that I live in an information age, knowing that a lot of my uh, worth and identity is centered around how much I know. I'm a knowledge worker. How much I know, how much I'm able to connect, how I'm able to connect the dots is directly correlated with how effective or how much influence or salary or command or power I can have in the marketplace. And so I started to realize, verse 36, would you turn here with me, what my grumbling actually became. And I think this is a grumbling for many of you all as you read through this passage as well. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have not seen me yet, yet you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All, the, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, 
I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Immediately, as you read that and as you say that, the angst in my own heart started to be around going down a rabbit hole of what I would teach you all today about total depravity versus partial depravity, Arminianism versus Calvinism. Am I one of the elect? Am I one of the chosen? How will I know that I am one of God's people? How will I know that I'm one of his sheep? When he says, whoever so believes in me so that all may have eternal life. Am I part of all? Or is the all only talking about his sheep? How do I know that I'm part of that? And so my grumbling wasn't about whether I would have bread that day. My grumbling wasn't about whether I was sick. My grumbling was an intellectual one because I'm a Western man in an intellectual information age and my ability to believe is connected to the certainty that I can draw from something. If I do this, I'm saved. If I see this sign, if it's in the contract, I know that I'm saved. And that was my grumbling. That was my mistake. And in an effort to understand what Jesus was saying versus taking his word at face value, I started going through all of these intellectual battles about knowing whether or not I was saved and how I would preach all that to you guys in 20 minutes. All right. But what I missed was the savior of the universe was there in front of them. And his command was simple. It wasn't an intellectual thing. All throughout the book of John, he's given simple commands. Look and see. Come and eat. Come and drink to the woman at the well. Eat and drink my flesh. Gnaw on my flesh. This was offensive, and it says grumbling. That word grumbling meant that they not only didn't understand it, not just that they didn't understand it, but they didn't like what he was saying. And so this idea that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ, and no one can even receive the love of Christ without the Father first drawing to him, flies in the face of everything that we believe as Americans, that you get what you work for. You get what you deserve. You get what you can intellectually understand and tie the dots to. That's how you know that you're saved. That's how you know that you're one of his chosen. That's how you know that you're one of the elect. And so my grumbling, when I'm going through all of these intellectual battles, I miss the savor of the universe sitting right in front of me. The title of the sermon is called, Don't Miss God's Grace, Grumbling About Lesser Things. Don't miss God's grace while grumbling about lesser things. My first point, you're giving yourself too much credit. Stop giving yourself too much credit. May 17th, 2012, Bree and I met for the first time. All right, so uh, she's coming into town, the college where we went to, uh, at my, uh, my brother-in-law's wedding two days later. And so her mom actually knew who I was, but I was at the grocery store in my Mustang. I had a 1984 uh, 
black and red T-top Mustang 5.0, had GT40 heads, one three-quarter length headers. You know, you guys, if you don't like cars, you don't know what I'm talking about. But I loved my car. My car was sexy, by the way. It was great. <laughs> but I did smell like 87 gas all the time, right? So I had a carburetor. I didn't have, you know, any catalytic converter. It was bad. But I was fresh riding around. You knew I was coming. So they see me at the gas station. Her mom and uh, Bree are picking some stuff up for the wedding. And they go, hey, Dante. And I had never met Bree in person. But I had met her mom. I met other family members. I met other people. And so that was my, the first time that Bree and I met. Fast forward, we have the wedding. We do everything. Like, she kind of gets to meet me. But she doesn't care about me at all. She doesn't know who I, she knows I'm the family friend. Oh, he's kind of funny. He was like a good athlete. You know, I was thinner, better looking, all that stuff then like a decade ago, <laughs> right? But she doesn't know me at all. But then about six months later, her brother and her wife were going to sign their, they signed their first professional basketball contract to go play in Australia. And so then I'm visiting them for a week before they leave. And I get to spend like a week with Brienne, a couple days. And so that's when I started pursuing Brienne. Started calling her, started texting her. I remember I sent her a Facebook message uh, on Facebook Messenger, like, can I have your number? Um, I actually sent that video. Literally, I sent that video. It's so embarrassing looking back now. And then from there, I would call, I would text, I would FaceTime, and I would even drive out to Louisville in that bucket that I had, the 1984 Mustang, nine hour drive from Williamsburg, Virginia. My whole point in telling you that was there was no anxiety from Brienne about saying no to me or rejecting my offer or my pursuit of her. She cannot claim credit for saying no to the pursuit of her because I was the one that pursued her. Romans 3 says, if you want to flip there, we'll go Romans 3 and then Romans 8. Romans 3, 10 through 11. It says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Romans 8, 7 through 8. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We have no capability of even saying no to God or even coming to God unless he draws us first. That is the grace of God. The fact that we even have the capacity, you're worrying about all of these things of whether I'm part of the elect or is God calling me or is God drawing me, you don't have the ability to even say no to God's offer unless he's drawing you. Brienne can't say no to somebody who isn't pursuing her. There's no thought of her saying no to some guy that she met at a wedding in a Mustang at a grocery store as her potential husband if I had not yet pursued her to be my potential husband. And so we get into these grumblings about these things that don't matter and recognize and don't recognize the lavish grace of God. Jesus says in that verse, no man, 44, no man can come to me. You cannot earn your salvation on your own. You cannot become a Christian on your own unless God calls you. The, the drawing is not a consequence of your effort, but God's effort towards you. We give because he gave. Before the foundation of the earth, God gave. And two questions that always pop up when you talk about this drawing. 
Well, if he must draw me, do I have free will? Okay. I'm going to deal with that one first. I have kids, so pretty much all of my like, references, I have four kids now. We just had our fourth kid. It should be a month old, I think, on Monday. All of my references are about small children. This idea about free will always comes up when you get into this discussion. Do we actually have free will? So free will, I believe that we do have free will in our choice to follow God, and I'll tell you this, and I'll share this why. But again, it's not the important thing. If you have two plates in front of your kids, one has cake and goldfish, one has broccoli and beets, one gives life, one is clearly killing you, slowly or quickly, depending on how fast you eat it. Given the ability to choose, no training at all, our kids do not have the capacity. They do not even want to eat the broccoli and the beets. No matter how hard you try, you put the plates in front of them, they have free will to choose the dates, but they physically cannot choose the dates. Try it at your next kid's birthday party. Put some broccoli out, put a plate of cupcakes out. See if they will choose the cupcakes. We have the ability to say no to God. But what Romans is telling us is that unless he actually draws you, our flesh is not even capable of even discerning the ability to make that choice. We would never even look at that first plate if God had not yet pursued us. Question number two that comes up. Well, what about them? If God calls me, then like, what about them? What about my wife? What about my kids? What about my other ones? There's a beautiful illustration in uh, the, 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 the books of Narnia. There's one that's called The Horse and the Boy. You ever read that? I think it's the fifth book. We're reading those right now with our kids. But there's this dude uh, named Shasta. Y'all remember the Shasta drinks from the 90s? Oh my gosh, I used to, yo, I love the Shastas. I get some amens from people that are like 30 and up. I used to love them Shasta drinks, but there's a guy named Shasta. All right, and there's this scene where he gets left behind by some others and he's walking and he just hears his voice and he gets scared. He's terrified, right? This is clearly Aslan that's coming up next to him. He's like, are you a giant? Who are you? Like, how, how did you like even know? And Aslan starts talking to him like he knows him. And he's like, man, like, how did you know that I came up on like a group of lions? And he's like, it wasn't a group of lions. It was one lion. I was the one that fended off the, uh, the other person, Arius or Varius. And I was the one that did this. And I was the one that did that. And I was the one that did that. And he was amazed. And then he said, well, what if the boy asked about another person's story? And Aslan looks at him and says, I only tell you your story. It's only your story that's important. And this actually comes up in John chapter 21, verses 20 through 23. At the end, after Jesus has been resurrected, he's walking with the disciples, and he tells Peter that he's going to die uh, for, for the cause, for his faith. He's going to be the rock upon which the church is built. And Peter goes, well, if I'm going to die, what about John? And, and Jesus goes, what is it to you if I keep his life? What is it to you, let me, let me get the actual quote. He says, what is it to you if I allow him to remain before you die? I only tell you your story. And so in our Western mind, I think the application point from this is that we get so caught up on 
do we have free will? What about others? What about what's going on with that person's life? Will they be drawn to God? Will they be called by God? And the Savior of the universe that is offering radical grace to us is sitting right in front of us. And we're grumbling about lesser things instead of focusing on the Savior. For yet while we were sinners, Christ died. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. And with his wounds, we are healed. Romans 8. Neither height nor depth, nor heavens nor angels, right, can separate us from the love of God. His grace is lavish. Focus on his grace. Don't overanalyze while you're at church today. Don't overanalyze while you're in the crowd. I'm going to give you a couple, couple things, even from the book of John, that, again, these people weren't questioning why they believed. They just freely accepted the Savior's offer that was in front of them, and they believed. John chapter 2, verse 11. John 2, verse 11. You don't have to flip with me. I always tell people that you're either going to get arthritis or paper cuts when I'm preaching. Arthritis if you got the, the digital Bible. All the orthopedic surgeons in here are like, amen, we need to come to Soma, make Dante preach a little more. So Jesus turns the water to wine at the wedding at Cana. And it says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. John chapter 4, 39 through 42. He had just spoken with the woman at the well. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Sorry, quoting here. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me that all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. John chapter 4, verses 53, just a few verses later. The father knew that this was the hour when he healed the sick boy. When Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed and all of his household. It does not matter why or where you were drawn. Simply eat and drink and believe. Stop questioning all of the things. Recognize God's grace in your life. Acts chapter 16, it said the Lord opened Lydia's heart to the teaching that Paul was giving to them when she came to church on a random Sunday on the river. Stop questioning whether God is calling you. Were you at church at the river that day? Did you feel something in your heart about God calling you? Eat and drink. Receive God's grace. Don't grumble about unimportant things while the Savior of the world is offering you unmeasurable grace right in front of you. Okay. Next point. Don't worry. You weren't that good to begin with. For my wife, it says good looking. You know, whatever, whatever context you want to put in there. Don't worry. You weren't that good looking to begin with. Okay. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me, all, all let me go, let's just go to the actual scripture here, because my writing is not very good. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
As I was praying for this sermon, preparing for this sermon, those words should have been life to me. But I was, again, so stuck in grumbling on the unimportant things. We all know deep down inside our deepest fear is that we're not enough. We're not healthy enough. We're not wealthy enough. We're not skinny enough. We're not good enough. We're not right enough. We're not smart enough. God won't love me. There's something deep down in our hearts that we all question this. And it's really the source of a lot of different things in there and that comes out, that manifests itself. But his word says that he will never cast you out. We're so worried about all the wrong things that Jesus says, I will never cast you out. If you weren't worthy enough of his grace to begin with, what makes you think that as you go and walk with Jesus that you'll become unworthy? You were never worthy in the first place. Stop worrying about all of the things. Stop getting entrapped in all the intellectual conversations in your mind about whether you're worthy enough. In Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, the son takes the father's wealth. He takes his name and he drags it through the mud. He squanders all of his wealth. And what does the father do? He runs towards him. He embraces him. He puts a ring on his finger. He gives him a coat. He kills their best calf and he throws a party. See the grace that God is giving and God is offering. Stop worrying about all of the intellectual things in your mind. John chapter 10, Jesus, it says, I am the good shepherd and I will not lose one sheep. Jesus isn't an okay shepherd. If I got sheep, I'm running a sheep business. I'm not going to hire the guy with three stars off a of thumbtack. And the review said, oh, I'll let him watch the sheep, and he let a couple run off, and uh, we don't know where those sheep are. Saw a fox, and he looked a little bigger from than the last time when I saw him. Jesus is the perfect shepherd. He says, I will never cast you out. I will not lose one who the Father has given me. Take rest in that if you've come and you've believed in Jesus, that you are one of his sheep, and that Jesus will not let you go away. The main role of the sheep, the main role of the shepherd, isn't to fight off all of the things coming after the sheep. It's literally to let the sheep, not let the sheep be stupid. Sheep will lead themselves to destruction. You don't need to bring in a wolf at all. That's one of the most insulting things of the gospel that God called a sheep. If you really understood that, you'd be like, man, I'm just not that bright up top. Be amazed that you can't fall out. Stop worrying about if you're one of the ones who are drawn, if you're one of the elect, if you're one of the chosen, how do I know that God is calling me? Stop grumbling about the unimportant things. And to close out here today, I'm gonna leave us with the life of Peter, which should serve as an encouragement for us all. Peter should serve as a case study of things to do and things to not do, which I think that's all of our lives in a nutshell. If we really played the tape, we hit the Netflix documentary on Don, the, the, life, the life and times of Dante Cook, you really saw it, you'd be like, yo, there's some high moments in there, there's a lot of low moments and stupid moments. Things to avoid, hopefully things to replicate. But Peter, his life is laid out for us on display in the gospel. One of the most interesting things about Peter is we think that he was just called by God and he just followed God immediately. That's not the story, right? John chapter one, 
Um, John the, they, so John uh, the Baptist had two disciples, Andrew and Simon, okay? Or and, Andrew and Simon Peter, soon to be Peter, right? And, and John goes, behold, the light of the world, the Messiah is here. And so Andrew, his brother, is hype. So he runs off and he tells his brother, he's like, yo, this is him. This is him. We got to go. 400 years, we've been waiting for a savior. This is the Messiah. We got to go. He takes him to Jesus and Jesus goes, your name is Cephas. Your name is Peter. And in that time, that's a really significant thing to change somebody's name. That changes your status. That changes your lineage. That changes your identity, your worth. He said, you are the rock. You are the rock. But then they didn't follow Jesus from that point. Actually, the chronological version of when we see them next, you see them in Matthew chapter 4, when James, John, Andrew, and Simon were all fishing together. And then so Jesus hops on the boat and he goes, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And then he calls them and then they follow him. Literally not even three months later, based upon some scholars, uh, uh, studying of the manuscripts in the time. Luke chapter 5, verses 1. Let's go there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Really quick. This is encouraging. We're almost at the end. Praise Jesus. 5 chapter 1. Every time in the Gospels when you see a rabbi or a mentor or a teacher, who's always with them? Always. This is not a trick question. This is like call and response. Who's always with them? They're disciples. They're always with them, right? If you're following them, if you're being instructed by them and they're teaching something, you're going to be in the front row taking notes. Okay? Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing into him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, by the lake but the fishermen had gone out of them and were, were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. Hold on. What did Simon go back to what Jesus called him from? Fishing. If he was following Jesus, wasn't he supposed to be in the front row taking notes when your rabbi is teaching, your teacher is teaching? He had already left three months later to go, go back to what he was doing before. He had already left. Did that make him not one of God's elect? Did that make him someone that God would not build his church upon? He was already gone. So Jesus, in his grace, don't miss God's grace while you're intellectually fumbling through things that are less important. He asked him to put out a little further from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at the knees of Jesus, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who are with him were astonished at the catch and the size of the fish. All right, let's go down a little further. Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they brought the boats to land, they left everything and followed him. But hold on. I thought our discipleship journey in Jesus was supposed to be all the way up and to the right. Immediately when I get my name changed and my brother tells me that this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for 400 years, surely I would leave everything and go follow him. 
Well, surely when he comes on the boat and he calls me to say, follow him, I would follow him, right? But that's not how it worked. Stop focusing on all of the intellectual battles of whether you're in Christ or not. Jesus' grace, God's grace, will pursue you in the midst of it. Move on a little further. Jesus called him out onto the water, and Peter didn't believe. He said, you have little faith when he called him out onto the water. And Jesus feeds the 5,000. And even in John chapter 6, the verse that we're reading from, verse that we're reading from, verse 68, 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Hype, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? So that's one of those moments you're fired up. You go to the Passion Conference down in Atlanta. You know, Louis Giglio, you're riding on a bus. You got 12 people sleeping in one bedroom. Everybody remembers that college experience. Everybody did that once, the Passion Conference, right? All right, but you're reclaiming your commitment to God. Where else would we go? We love you, God. We're going to serve you, God. We're going to ride with you, God. We're going to do everything for you, God. Then the next time we see Peter in the scriptures, he rebukes Jesus, not once but twice. Jesus is telling him and all of his disciples that he's going to die. And he goes, Jesus, you ain't going to die. You're not going to die. And then Jesus offers to wash his feet. He says, you won't wash my feet. And then Jesus gets arrested by a Roman soldier, and he chops off an ear. Sorry, I get hyped. He chops off an ear. And then in one of the most pivotal moments in all of Scripture, John chapter 18, John chapter 18, he denies Jesus. John chapter 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter, standing and warming himself, was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are also not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. That's a pretty low moment. 
You're with the Savior, the Messiah of the world. You've seen him do all these miracles. Jesus, I'm going to ride with you to the end. You are eternal life. Your words, where else would we go? And then you deny him three times. The rooster crows. And Jesus is crucified on the cross. Now I question, again, in our Western thinking, in our Western mind, are we so focused on those initial questions when we go back to Jesus speaking to this crowd of people about none will come unless the Father draws him, about whether we're part of his elect, this intellectual argument, this grumbling of not understanding and not liking what God is saying about him being the only way that we can access the Father, that we miss Jesus and his invitation, which is simply come and drink, eat and drink, look and see. I am the bread of life, gnaw on my flesh, and you will have eternal life. Are we so caught up in all the intellectual things that we believe that when we have a bad day, I bet you your day isn't as bad as denying the Savior of the world three times, that you somehow believe that you are not part of his elect anymore, that you're somehow so focused on your works and your worth that you ignore God's grace in the whole equation. The final thing that we see from Peter, obviously after Jesus is resurrected, is he delivers the prayer in the sermon of Pentecost. And thousands come and believe, and he is the rock upon which I will build my church. And soon after that, him and John actually perform the first miracle of healing a lame man after Jesus' ministry had ended. And so tell me then, was he not part of God's elect? Was he not drawn by God? In all of these things, I want to encourage you and not to just leave that passage in John chapter 6, verses 36 through 47. Don't be so caught up on all of the grumblings and all of the lesser things that you ignore God's grace, that you ignore the simple invitation that Jesus is calling us to, which is eat and drink, and you will have eternal life. Tomorrow will take care of itself. But God says that if you have come to me, if God has given you to me, I will never cast you out. You will never be let out of my reach. Stop worrying about all the things that aren't important and simply come to God today. And so I just want to take a moment to pray here. If you've ever struggled with these questions of am I part of God's elect, how do I know? I just want to pray that in humility that we just come to Jesus' feet. Like Mary and Martha as they're preparing to host people over for dinner and we're so worried about doing things in order to curry God's grace instead of just resting at the Savior's feet. Don't ignore God's grace today because of whatever intellectual grumblings you have in your mind. Whatever you're thinking, whatever doubt that you have that you are not part of God's elect, you are. And if you are, God will never leave you or forsake you. Stop grumbling about the things that don't matter and focus on the Savior right ahead of us. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, forgive us for not accepting 
not recognizing that it is only by your grace that we can come to faith and knowledge in you in the first place. We thank you for your call and your invitation to eat the bread of life, to drink your blood, to eat on your flesh, Lord, and to not place our hopes and our desires on the material things of this world that will never satisfy. Lord, I pray that we would recognize ourselves in these stories in first century uh, Middle Eastern culture, Lord, that we would recognize ourselves as one of the characters in the story and not those are people who are primitive and don't understand, and so we neglect the teaching and the hard words that you're saying, Lord. I pray that in the seasons of being on fire for you, God, when we're like Peter, when we said, where else would we go, God? We will follow you everywhere. Lord, forgive me for I am a sinful man. I will follow you to the ends of the earth. And then that, Lord, you would also remind us, Lord, through your spirit, through your words in John chapter 10, that you're the good shepherd, through our community here at Soma, that no matter high, no matter how high, no matter how low, no matter how good you perform or no matter how poorly you perform, Lord, it is by your grace that we are here and it's by your grace and your son Jesus Christ that we are saved. That is our only hope. That is our only rescue. That is our only resolve, Lord. Not our works, not our might, not what we can do, not what we can muster up, Lord, but simply your son dying on the cross on our behalf, crushed for our iniquities. I thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that you made for me. I thank you for the sacrifice that you made for the world. Before the foundation of the world, Lord, it said, Lord, that you knew me. And so after the foundation of the world goes away, after this world passes away, you will still know me and you will never cast me out. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for when I fail as a father, when I fail as an elder, when I fail as an employee, Lord, that you will pursue me like you did Peter. That when after I deny you three times, Lord, when I look at your face afterwards, it won't be a stern look like I told you so. It'll be like, I knew that this would happen and I love you still. I pray that we would believe in you as our one and only hope. That we would put our rest that we would put all of our hopes and all of our fears and all of our desires in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.